good morning. Uh, for those that don't know me, uh, I'm John Vinter, senior pastor at Overland Hills Church, and as you've probably guessed right, uh, rightly by now, Davey, your pastor, is over ministering at our church this morning, and so we've done the big old annual swap. So uh, uh, I count it a, a privilege and a blessing to be here. Uh, Davey and I meet regularly, and uh, we talk about what's happening as we continue in this in this partnership. Um, as uh, Center Baptist moves towards uh, its church health goals and uh, seeing that on display this morning as uh, as two elders have been nominated, I guess. So uh, wonderful to, to hear. And as uh, we continue to pray for you as you, um, uh, well, in particular, as you're coming up on that meeting uh, to affirm these two men. And uh, so we're very excited for you. Uh, I want to say something just, uh, just about being here this morning. Uh, one of the things that uh, that should happen in worship. You know, when you ask the question, "What do you do when when what do Christians do when they gather together to worship?" Well, uh, you pray the word, you sing the word, and you preach the word. And that's what we're we're doing this morning. And uh, and I I know it's probably not really appropriate to affirm a prayer, but Chris's prayer. So soaked in scripture, uh, I, I'm, I was just amening the whole way through. So thank you for leading us in prayer. I was just extraordinarily blessed by that. Thank you. All right, well, uh, let's take our Bibles together and turn to the Word of God. I've chosen a passage of Scripture this morning that I wanted to preach for a long time, and I've uh, been preaching through Genesis uh, back at Overland Hills. Um, I thought, well, this is an opportunity for to preach uh, for me to preach something that, that is that a passage of Scripture that has meant much to me uh, over the last years. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter. I invite you to follow along in your own Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's give our full attention to God's word as it is being read with the idea in our minds that this is God speaking. Hear the word of the Lord. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such hope, 
We are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is God's Word. It is my custom before preaching to ask for God's help for both me and you. We want to hear from God. Let's ask. Father in heaven, uh, this is your living and active word that lies open before us. And we know we need it. You tell us it is our daily bread. Because we do not live on physical bread and meat alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So, Father, we're asking in this time that you accomplish in us what we can't do for ourselves. God, as we hear, we pray that your voice would transcend the voice of a mere man, that you accomplish in us what we cannot do for ourselves. And as a result, the Lord Jesus Christ himself would be exalted in this place. Lord, would you guard my mouth, direct my thoughts even as I preach what has been prepared. Please bring glory to Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. When did that happen? (laughs) Didn't see that happen. The mic got moved. Well, uh, the text of scripture that we read together is, we might say, a little esoteric. A little, like, what is he talking about here? Um, We'll we'll get to that. We'll get to unpacking it. But let me just start with uh, just this, maybe an illustration. When my kids were in high school, and this is not something that's unfamiliar to any of us, uh, maybe... Maybe you remember this or your children did this. One of the assignments that they had was to learn how to put together a resume. Um, I know a lot of this is now done online, resumes and things like that. But when I was a young man, I was looking for a job. I I would write a cover letter and attach my resume. And I would put both on really, really good quality paper to impress them. Look at that paper, they would say, hopefully. But in a sense, it was a a self-commendation. Here I am. This is me. Now, before you meet a prospective employer, or maybe even the first time you meet, you're putting before them a summary of your education and experience in, in the hope that they'll eventually see that you have something to offer, not just nice paper, but something to offer in substance and give you a job. We get that. We get that that's what a resume is for. Now, in our passage, we look at it here in verse 1. The Apostle Paul opens with this question. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So why is he saying this? Now, apparently, apparently, in Corinth, there had been some uh, other itinerant preachers visiting those believers in Corinth. Or perhaps... uh, they had attempted to undermine Paul's ministry. Maybe that's what was going on. 
Now, these preachers were probably very, very skilled orators. That's, that was a common skill in those days to, to value the traveling preacher who could, who could put together lovely words and impress them. So they were very impressive in all likelihood. But I take it from the way Paul is unfolding the argument here in this letter is that perhaps something in their message was missing. Perhaps they had not fully understood the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. It would seem from Paul's argument to some degree that they're resting on the law, heavily resting on the law. And so I would just simply put it this way to summarize perhaps what Paul is, is arguing against, if you will, in this section. The message of these traveling preachers is, try harder, do better. And when you fail, try again. Just get back up on that horse and, and just get back at it. Try harder, do better. Pull up your socks, get, get to it. And that's not Paul's message at all. In fact, that's not the apostolic message. That's not the gospel. And so Paul's saying here, look, do you really need my resume? And then he reminds them. He reminds them what they are. He says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. So what he's saying here, he says, you are commended to us because of what is obvious to all and the evidence of which is the fact that you are a letter from Christ. That is to say, having believed the gospel that we brought to you, the Spirit planted that truth on your hearts. And so what Paul is doing in this section, he's telling these Corinthian believers how they came to know Christ. He's telling these believers what Christ has done for them and how Christ changes them. And that has everything to do with the Holy Spirit. And it has everything to do with the Holy Spirit revealing the glory of Christ. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, here's what I want to do today. I want, to, I want you to be reminded from the Word of God what the Holy Spirit has done and is doing in you. So follow me as we move through this text together. So here's what you need to know. And I have three, three headings, three, three truths to really take from this, this text. You have been made alive. That's the first thing to know. You have been made alive. Secondly, you have been freed. And third, you are being transformed. You have been made alive, you have been freed, and you are being transformed. First, you have been made alive. Now, here is an absolutely elementary, obvious truth. When you're not alive, you don't do anything. You don't will anything. You don't think anything. I think we all get that. There's, there's nothing hidden about that statement. There's nothing unusual to us. Before you were born, before you were conceived, you didn't have any sense of existence because you were not all of us here had nothing to do with our physical existence. That was decided by the actions of our parents. And that is quite obvious to all of us, I know. But here's the point. Spiritual life is the same. It was not your doing. The, Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who gets the credit. You have been made spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit. 
Now let's get back to the idea that, genuine, that the genuine faith of the Corinthian believers is Paul's resume. He says here, verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we, he's referring to himself and Timothy as the writers of this or just the, the general apostolic witness, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. We're not sufficient to do that. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. And what Paul here understands is that God has worked to make them spiritually alive. But he's done that through a message that the apostles delivered. But in saying that, he's careful not to claim any credit for their salvation. He doesn't want to do that. Instead, he tells them that, that our sufficiency is from God. God is the one who made the apostles sufficient to me ministers. That is to say, servants of the new covenant. And perhaps here Paul is even reflecting on his own apostolic calling on, on the road to Damascus. The Lord you know, blinded him there as he fell to the ground. And the Lord told him that he would bring the message of Jesus to the Gentiles and their kings. Perhaps Paul is remembering that. But he continues here, leading up to verse 6. God, has, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And here's the distinction he's drawing here. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And this is what I said. It's a, it's a little esoteric, a little like, well, what's he talking about? It seems odd language here. Well, here Paul introduces this idea of new covenant. New covenant. And what he's doing, he's linking, to, uh, linking the idea of the new covenant to the work of the Holy Spirit. New covenant, Holy Spirit. Those, that's, those are to be considered together here. Now, that new covenant is what Jesus introduced to his, to his disciples in the upper room, as you might recall, and we will celebrate that uh, this morning as Jesus gathered with his disciples using wine as a symbol. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So this new covenant, as the Apostle Paul describes in verse 9, is a ministry of righteousness. And that ministry of righteousness, this new covenant, is a ministry that far exceeds the glory of the ministry of condemnation. That is to say, the old covenant. Now again, these are strange ways to make reference to the old covenant as a ministry of condemnation. Why does he do this? Well, first of all, to highlight the ministry of righteousness, because what that means is life. And the ministry of righteousness means life because the Holy Spirit applies it to the believer. And I don't want you to miss this. The ministry of righteousness that he's talking about, the new covenant means life because the Holy Spirit applies it to the believer. Now we've got to pause here because he's talking about the new covenant and, and hopefully you're tracking here when Jesus talks about the new covenant, the new covenant in his blood, that is the promise of God to save, rescue his people through, through the forgiveness of their sins, not through the sacrifice of an animal, a bull or a goat, but through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So he says to his disciples, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. So what then is the old covenant? I think you know, but it's simply the law that was delivered to the Israelites through Moses at Mount Sinai. 
So it included the Ten Commandments, right? Those commandments that were inscribed by the finger of God into these tablets of stone. And the, the, the Old Covenant included as well requirements for acceptable worship. That Old Covenant included those requirements for animal sacrifice as a way for those Israelites to demonstrate their, their genuine contrition, their, their repentance for their own sins before the Lord. They would bring an animal. But what did that covenant, what did that letter accomplish for the Israelites? And this is the point that Paul is making. It didn't make anyone spiritually alive. It didn't. Actually, it brought death. Paul says in verse 6, the letter kills. Now again, it's strange language for the Apostle Paul to say, what, our, our Bible? The Bible kills? The letter kills. Now, I take it that Paul is not saying that upon hearing it, right, that one just drops dead. Of course, he doesn't mean that. But rather, what he is saying is that in hearing the law, it reveals the fact that we're already dead. Spiritually dead. And therefore, because of that, condemned to die. Condemned to an eternal separation from God. As Psalm 14.3 says, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They're not righteous in the least. And that includes everybody. All of humanity is what the psalmist is talking about. No one does good. And Paul, in fact, Paul, the apostle, quotes this in, in Romans chapter 3. Now, looking at the commandments of the law, you, you may not have broken the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. I don't know if there's any murderers in the room. But I'm quite certain that you've broken the 10th commandment. I mean, I know I have. I've coveted before. And what does James, in his letter, say about law-breaking? Okay, I only coveted a little. James says, whoever keeps the whole law, never murdered, never bore false witness, didn't commit adultery, didn't steal. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You coveted. You're guilty of the whole thing. That's us. That's us in our natural state. And what does the Bible tell us happens in our natural state? What happens to the guilty? Romans 6, 23. You know this. The wages of sin is death. And that is physical death to be sure the consequence of sin on our physical bodies, but the wages of sin is an eternal death, an eternal separation from God. And that's what the Old Covenant does. It, it reveals that we are dead. <laughs> but he doesn't leave it there, because Paul says in verse 6, but, but, here's the good news, the Spirit gives life. Now, at this point, and we could be tempted to, to think, well, he's just trashing our Old Testament, right? He doesn't want to undermine the law in any way, no. It's not bad. The law was indeed glorious. That's the point he's making in this text. It was glorious. But its glory was meant to be superseded by a greater glory. The glory of the Holy Spirit. So follow his reasoning. And he uses Moses as an illustration. Verse 7. 
Now, if the ministry of death, that's the old covenant, right? Because it just revealed that we're dead. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, that's the tablets, right? That the Lord inscribed on, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. Okay, we're going to stop there because you're thinking, what's, what's going on here? If you know your Old Testament, if you know this story, when Moses, I'll read this from Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, and as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So there was this reflected glory that was in Moses' face. And it was so intense that it frightened the Israelites. They would see Moses and they'd be like, this is just crazy. They couldn't look at him. So what did Moses do? He put, a, he put a veil over his face, the Bible tells us. Now, Paul's point in using Moses as this illustration is, is that the law, having come from the Lord, was glorious, yes. But like Moses, as the glory reflected on his face would fade over time, so, in the same way, the glory of the law would fade. Why? Because it would be superseded, superseded by a much greater glory. And here's the thing. Our new covenant, the, the New Testament, you've got to understand this, believers, our New Testament doesn't make much sense unless we have the Old Testament. You can't just rip out the Old Testament and go, I'm just a New Testament Christian. No, to make sense of the New Covenant, you need the Old One. The Spirit is a greater glory, but there was glory. Now, it was a glorious thing, understand this, that God should judge. Is it not a glorious thing that God sits over all creation as judge? That He is the righteous, holy, all-powerful God. That's a glorious thing. And his law reveals to us his holy character. And that is always glorious, verse 9. So there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. Maybe it's hard to put that together in your mind, but there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. But the glory of the law that reflected God's divine character and that judgment that came with it that ultimately condemned those that it spoke to that was not meant to be the last word. And here is where the Holy Spirit comes in. Paul says, verse 8, The ministry of the Spirit has even more glory than the ministry of the Old Covenant. More glory. Verse 9, the ministry of, the, of righteousness, that is to say, applied by the Holy Spirit, must far exceed the ministry of condemnation. That's that letter that kills so yes, the law is glorious. But you get this, don't you? Being told not to murder or to commit adultery, being told not to bear false witness, being told not to covet, it doesn't take away your guilt for having done so, does it? It doesn't fix anything. It just confirms your guilt. So then, how does the Spirit give life? And this is what Paul's doing. He's comparing the Old Covenant with the New. And remember, there's these preachers going around and they're leaning heavily on the law. You just got to try harder. You just got to do better. You just got to fix yourself up. Jesus came to die for your sins, but listen, make it better. Do well. Paul's saying, that's, that's not how you were made alive. 
So how does the Spirit give life? And this is important. And I'll direct you to the beginning of John's Gospel. You don't have to turn there. But there we're introduced to Jesus as the Word of God who became flesh. So the Old Covenant was a word from God. And now Jesus, representing the New Covenant in His blood, right? He is the Word of God who now becomes flesh. Who was, and uh, sorry, Word of God who became flesh and who was God. And it tells us in verses 12 and 13 of that chapter of John's gospel, but to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he, God, gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So John's saying here that the evidence of spiritual life, that you're alive, that you become a child of God, that you've been born spiritually, It wasn't by flesh. Remember, you didn't cause yourself to be physically born. Nothing to do with you. The same is true spiritually. It's not by flesh. It's not by the will of man. But it's by God. And the evidence of your spiritual life is that you have received Jesus. You have received Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And brothers and sisters, this is how you were made alive. This is how we were made alive. By by trusting that Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world. By, By knowing and seeing that the Scriptures reveal about Him, that He lived the perfect human life. Knowing and having confidence that He died on the cross in your place. That He was buried. That He rose from the grave on the third day. And that He is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, where He intercedes for His own. And if you've been made alive by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit remains with you forever. Romans 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, are you spiritually alive? What's the test? You received Jesus. The Holy Spirit has applied that to you. His death was for you, and you recognize it, and that's the fact. You've been made alive by the Holy Spirit. So, here's the second thing to know. You have been made alive, and if you're alive spiritually, it's also true that you have been freed. You have been freed. So, the first point deals with like a, it's a a static position. You're now alive. So, what, how do alive people live? Alive people live as free people. This is what he's saying. You've been freed. Uh, You may be familiar with the New New Hampshire state motto. I don't know if they still have the license plate, but I like it. Live free or die, right? It's like stark contrast. I'll live free or just, you know, kill me because that's the only way I want to live. I I like it in a sense. It really presents this stark contrast because why? I mean, the New Hampshireites, is that what you call them? But I think really in the founding of this nation, that was kind of the, the, the sentiment, right? Throw off the, the, the king, don't want George, you know, getting in our way. Just let us be, right? Even as a Canadian, I can say that I value that. It's, it's, it's good. But we value freedom, right? Rather die than not have it. But we are woefully unaware in our natural state of the bondage of mind and heart that leads to death. In Christ... The Holy Spirit has made you truly free. Verses 12 through 15 of our text that I read, the Apostle Paul describes those without the Spirit, without. 
So here again, he's using this, this illustration of Moses, and remember the veil over his face, to shield them from the glory. He says this in verse 14 about those, he says, their minds were hardened. In other words, it makes, it, makes them unable to hear the truth. Their minds are just, they're hardened. They're, they're not open to, to what God has to say. In verse 15, he says, a veil lies over their hearts. So the veil and Moses, right? Shielding people from the glory. Now he says the veil lies over their hearts. So who's the they that Paul here is referring to? Well, first it was the Israelites who received the law. But I think Paul is talking about his, his Jewish contemporaries. So that when they read the old covenant, he says, the law, when they read Moses, that is when they're confronted by the law, the covenant of condemnation, as Paul calls it, here's what they do. They read the Ten Commandments and they think they can achieve what it demands. Why? Because their minds are hardened. Why? Because their hearts are veiled. They cannot see that they're only condemned by it. And I would suggest that anyone who does not have the Spirit has a mind that is hardened and has a veiled heart. And listen, that's all of us before the Holy Spirit made us alive. And I would suggest to you that a lot of people who think religiously but do not understand salvation in Christ alone, a lot of people who think religiously think of God that way. Their minds are hardened so that they, they, they have it in mind that, that, well, God grades on a curve. As long as I'm not as bad as Hitler, I may not be good as some, you know, saint somewhere that they think in their mind. I, I think I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. Well, I, I'm pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm a nice guy to work with. I'm really kind to my neighbors. I, you know, I bake cookies for the new people on the street. I go to church. I, I give to charity. I think God will God'll be happy with that. You know, a lot of people have this in mind. That they, I, I think I've done enough good. No, I mean, that's veiled thinking. That's hardened minds. It's a lie. But then in verse 16, Paul says this. But when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. It's taken away. When one turns to Christ in faith, when one is born again by the Spirit of God and then indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they then can understand and believe. And the Apostle Paul says this in verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord there is freedom. Freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is. Where is the Spirit of the Lord? He's in you, right? And if the Spirit of the Lord is in you, that means you have freedom. He dwells in us and He gives us freedom. And what? Freedom from what? Freedom from the consequences of the law of God. Freedom from its penalty. Freedom, well, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3.23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Faith in Christ he's talking about. And brothers and sisters, we are free 
from the consequence of the law because the Lord Jesus Christ himself suffered the consequence of the law for us. And the Holy Spirit took that reality and opened your mind to it and put it on you. Secondly, we're free from fear. We have freedom from fear. Again, a lot of people have fear of God. Fear that they will one day stand before Him. Fear, I just hope, I hope I've done enough. Good. I don't know. And so there's a fear. Or when they do something that's like really bad. I don't know. I mean, I've met a lot of people who, who are who have a little religious indoctrination. I play in a hockey team and the guys talk like this all the time. And they'll, they'll talk about some vile thing that they did. Oh man, I don't, I don't know if God can forgive that. Yeah, I'm probably just gonna go to hell. You know, and they're, they're kind of cavalier about it. Maybe they're sort of half joking, but a lot of people think that way. And it is true, <laughs> it is true that our sins will take us to hell. But for the believer in Jesus, we're free from that fear. Why? Because Jesus bore the full weight of that at the cross. We're free, free from fear. The Bible says that we can come boldly before God, asking for mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. I better speed this up. Um, finally, in that section, you don't have to worry about, you can be free from sin. Free from sin. Meaning, you don't have to sin anymore. You don't have to. You're not, you're not bound to sin anymore. You can be free not to sin. Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 2, For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And that's because of Christ's sacrifice at the cross. So you may ask how that works. Let me give you a quick recap. We are made alive by the Holy Spirit. So by the Holy Spirit, you've been made alive. And because you're spiritually alive, you have been freed. And because you have been freed, this is the last point, and I'll be brief here. You have been transformed. And this is what, what, I, what so gripped my heart about this passage of Scripture. Now, we get this. People spend a lot of money. They spend a lot of energy and time to change their appearance, right? And whether that's a radical change of a diet, maybe this disciplined exercise routine, or surgery to remove something or add something or tighten something. You know, we know about this, right? People do this, why? Because they have this physical vision of themselves that they're aiming for. Well, God's not so much concerned with our physical appearance as He's concerned with our character. And God has a very specific vision for us, a moral vision for His people. His will for us is to become like His Son in character. And the good news here, brothers and sisters, is that God has not left us alone to fix ourselves. He has not. He has given the Spirit to transform us. And I want you to see how this works. And this is the wonderful uh, beauty of this passage right here. Look at verse 18. Again, with the imagery of Moses and the veil over his face, shielding the people from the glory, he says this in verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Do you get what he's saying here? Beholding the glory of Jesus. 
This has a very real effect on you. Beholding the glory of Jesus changes you. It transforms you. And this is the amazing simplicity of the power of the gospel. The Spirit makes you spiritually alive by indwelling you. That genuine life is freedom to live in the joy of our our sonship, being sons and daughters of God. And then the Spirit progressively changes you to become more like Christ. And so with the veil lifted, we see Jesus. We see the glory of who He is and what He has done for us. We see Him as the treasure that He truly is. Listen, God's will for you, God's will for you, and I can say this without any hesitation, God's will for you is to be conformed to the image of His Son, Romans 8, 29. That's God's will for you. That theological term, you you likely know it, is sanctification. So let me ask you, do you want to be transformed so that you are increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus? Now think, right now, you can think of ways where you fall short. Do you want to leave your greed and selfishness behind? Do you want to be able to forgive and leave bitterness behind? Do you want to be able to control your tongue so that you don't wound others with the thoughtless things you say? Do you want that? Do you want to put away lustful thoughts and deeds? Do you want to love your wife or husband sacrificially? Do you want to encourage and build up your children to know and love Jesus? Do you want to have joy instead of the dread you may feel? Do you want to endure suffering with confidence that God is in charge? Do you want that? Do you want to truly love your enemies? Do you want to be able to truly pray for those who persecute you? Jesus called us to do that. Do you want to serve your church with joy? Do you want to give sacrificially to the Lord and to those in need? Do you want these things? Do you want to put on the character of Christ? You will, if you look to Jesus and behold his glory. It's so, so, so incredibly simple. And yet, we spend so much time and energy thinking about how can I fix myself up? But you can't. So how do you behold the glory of Jesus? Well, hopefully you get this already. It's in the gospel. It's by focusing on who Jesus is, who he is as the son of God. By focusing on what he has done for you, how he came into the world, he lived that perfect life that we could not. How he died for our failures to do so, and in our place, and to took that punishment. He was buried and he rose on the third day. So if you want to be like Jesus, keep looking at him. Keep looking at him. Now, I'm not saying self-discipline doesn't matter. But the primary power in your life and in mine to become like Christ is not in you. It's in the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to behold the glory of Jesus. You behold the glory of Jesus when, when you open the scriptures for yourself. You behold the glory of Jesus when you hear the word of God preached. You behold the glory of Jesus when you see the life of another believer lived out by God's grace and enjoy the fellowship of others encouraging you in the word. Listen, it's, it's a simple principle of sanctification, being made like Christ, that I, that I call a, just a, a principle of displacement. But you get what happens, right? If you have a dirt, dirt in a glass, right? full of dirt and garbage. And then you just stick that 
glass under a faucet and just force clean water into it. At some point in time, all the dirt is washed away. And that's what happens to us, brothers and sisters. The way we become more like Christ is just by displacing the garbage that was in there with the glory of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says, beholding His glory, we are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And this all comes from the Spirit. That is the power of the Gospel. To make us alive, to set us free, and to transform us every single day. It's good news. As the hymn writer said, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Hold on to these truths. You've been made alive by the Spirit, by beholding the glory of Jesus. You have been freed by the Spirit, by beholding the glory of Jesus. And you are being transformed by the Spirit, by beholding the glory of Jesus.